we're here. We're doing things today. Hey, okay. So when Amy and I first got married, when we first got, not sorry, 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 back up, back up one step. When we first got engaged, when we first got engaged, we started going through some premarital counseling. We started having serious conversations, trying to establish rules and boundaries that would set up our whole marriage. We started having conversations about who we were as a couple and making sure that we were on the same page and making sure that we would work well together in marriage. I want to share one of those rules with you guys, but honestly, I'm a little scared to do it because I, if I share this, I'm scared that you're going to either tune me out or be offended for the rest of the message. So will you give me the space to be vulnerable with you and open? Okay, here it is. From the very beginning, Amy and I, a rule that we would build our life around, the glue to our marriage, was that we would be a no-cat family. I got amen from Luis. Oh, no cat fan. Now, that's no offense to you guys who love cats, and that includes my daughter. Okay, we got, a, we got a puppy dog like two months ago, and she said when we introduced her to the dog, can we take it back? Let's get a cat. No, we can't take the dog back. You're supposed to be happy about this, okay? So it's not, it's no offense, but we're just not cat people. It's not who we are, and we had to establish that. As one great mother said, and I quote, there's a reason God made them the perfect size to punt. Like, that's not me. That's just some, that's another mom. I don't know. That wasn't me. That's, that's, that was a mom. Okay. So, but on a serious note, though, Amy and I did have a rule that I want to share with you guys today. On a serious note, and that is that we would just eliminate the word divorce from our vocabulary. We are allowed to joke that we're going to murder each other. Like, I am just going to end you. Okay, we can say that. But we are not allowed in jest to say divorce, in anger to bring it up, just to completely eliminate it from our vocabulary. And now here's the thing, though, is that just eliminating that word from your vocabulary, though, will not keep your marriage together. Just not saying it is not enough. So today I just really felt this deep desire to kind of press in. We're continuing our uh, uh, series on Insta family and looking at snapshots of healthy relationships. And you know, the problem with social media, and we say this all the time, but the problem with social media is that you always just see the best of things, a snapshot of what you want to share, right? When the family's all looking at the camera and everybody, you've got a lollipop in the kid's mouth and they stop crying and everybody's looking forward and they're smiling and stuff. So what we want to do today, though, is kind of open up your phone, clear that message about buying more storage from Apple. No, I don't need that. And we're going to look at the 20 or 30 blooper photos that didn't make it to social media. Okay, the things that we don't share, the things that are unseen about our marriages and relationships, the things that either are growing or hindering those relationships. So that's where we're going today. Are we okay with that? <laughs> Listen, y'all, I know we're outside, but I still need some interaction with you guys. This is just a conversation, so I need a little bit of help today. Okay, we're okay. So if you would, you can grab your Bibles or you can grab your phones. And we're actually going to, you can guess it probably is Ephesians 5. And as soon as you get there, if you would, would you just stand? Because we're going to read this whole section. And just in uh, reverence for the word of the Lord, I feel like we want to stand today as we read this section over. So as you find that scripture, or if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. You can just stand up all over the place. But as you would, if you just stand, we're going to read this together. 
This is Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to start halfway through the verse. It says instead. So it says this. And this is a little bit, quite a bit of scripture, so just stay with it, but let it sink in. If you're a little bit one that wanders and distracted, you can even close your eyes and just listen. But listen to these words. It says, Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. Give thanks for everything to give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the house, or head of the wife, and as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to the, uh, Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's just pray. Father, before we even go a word farther, Lord, I pray you would just be working in hearts right now. God, I already know you're doing that. I know that on the way here, throughout the week, in the worship, Father, that you've been preparing to, in me to speak a word, God, and into your people to receive it. Holy Spirit, right now, I just pray that you would be speaking to hearts and people where they're at in their specific situations, God. I pray that this scripture and the words that I speak over the next few minutes, God, would minister and do your work in your people, Father. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You can sit down. Hey, to set up this conversation, though, today, I I wanted to go into the roles of marriage, but I felt this strong as I was doing this and as I was studying, I I felt like we needed to take a step back and just set up a little bit more before we can have that conversation. And so today, I just, before we can even talk about those roles and how marriages work and stuff, I feel like we need to look at marriage in general. The first thing is that marriage has changed a lot in the last gener- generation or so, a couple generations. It's changed a lot. You know, marriage's purpose has had many different, uh, has been, its purpose has been for many things and has held many different levels of status, and it's changed over time. And so this is uh, from one article that I was researching this week. It says, starting with the baby boomer generation, also known as the me generation, large slices of the population began to put individual fulfillment ahead of traditional family roles. With more of a focus on individuality, divorce increasingly became acceptable. Instead of remaining remaining trapped in an unhappy or even unsafe marriage, there was now a way out. No fault divorce came to prominence in this era. You no longer longer had to provide cause. You could divorce simply because you wanted out of your marriage. If you remember back to earlier this February, we did a lot of work on hyper-individuality. 
We talked about this strong shift in our culture from a strong group, relational, community-focused uh, way of living into a cultural standard of living and building oneself, one's own empire, one's career, into strong liberation to start focusing on your own self and your own uh, who you're becoming. Unfortunately, I believe that that view has leaked its way into how we see marriage and how we see relationships. You know, the most recent trend right now with marriage is that it's actually not happening. It's actually delaying the event. The, the most common age right now, the average age for first time marrying for millennials right now is 30 year old for men, 28 for women, and that's kind of normal. But you know, just one or two generations ago, that was the social, almost the next milestone as soon as you graduate high school or college was to find that significant other. And you'd have conversations like, um, man, that guy's in his mid-20s and he's attractive and he's got a career, so he's single. There must be something wrong with him, right? That was a, I remember that phrase. I remember people around me saying that about other people, but now that's not really the case because we're just delaying that event. And there's reasons for that, but Gen Z has also pulled up that banner. It seems like they're also doing that, is that just delaying it. It's no longer the top priority. And there's some logical reasons that make sense. Some of it is financial fear-based, is that I want to be financially free. Like I want to pay off my school debts. I want to have no loans. I want to be able to buy a house. Or marriage is just too expensive. It's so expensive to get married. So, I, I, you know, let's just save that money and invest it instead. Or going back to individual focus, there's this idea is that instead of becoming committed and locked into this long-term relationship, I really just want to establish myself in my career. Let's figure out who I am in those mid-20s, figure out where I'm going before I try to bring another person into that. And also, there's this sense, and we talked a lot about this in February, so I don't want to bring it up too much, but just the current trend of what hyper-individuality has done is created isolation. Instead of real, in-person, face-to-face relationships, we feel connected because of the phone in our front right pocket, through all of our social media and being able to easily text anybody at any given hour and be in contact constantly. We feel connected but we actually lack true community and true relationship. And so you're just not around people. And so all of these reasons have created for pushing marriage off and pushing it later. But here's the thing, though, is that we're just not getting married. The marriage rate has gone down astronomically. It's something like projected to be like 25% of millennials will not be married by the time they're 40. And that's a, a staggeringly high rate compared to past generations. So we're not getting married, but we are in relationships. So as the marriage rate goes down, what has been happening in place is that cohabitation has been coming up. And so instead of being married, we still have relationships. We still have are in those community relationships. We're just living with each other before we get married. And in the secular sense, and if you are individually focused or mindset, that makes sense. Because you can beta test the relationship. You can make sure, you can get all the kinks out. You can make sure there's compatibility, that you're going to work together. You can save money because you still have that, uh, you're not paying for the wedding. You're not paying for maybe uh, a house yet. There's perks of the marriage. Your physical needs, your emotional needs might be met. 
but there's still this large sense of individuality. You still have separate bank accounts. You still can have separate friend groups. You can still have separate interests. One article says it this way, is that cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and to continue to look around for a better partner. I would say the same goes for both ways. It's something shifted in our view and idea of what marriage is. We can now live together without the pressure of changing, sacrificing for one another because you always have that emergency exit ready. Because marriage often requires some kind of change. Whether that's you change in how you view your shows or how you spend your money, there's something there, and studies have proven that when you're in that committed relationship, in that tie, legal tie together, that there's more um, accountability over everything that you have, over your time, over your energy, over your resources, or the way that you conduct your life. You have more commitment, but in without that, you have a more uh, freedom in your individuality. And part of this rise in this movement, though, is that I believe that there's just a strong disillusionment of what love is. I think that we've started thinking that marriage is equal to romantic love. And if you think back right now and the things that kind of capture our attention, it's all of the things that our culture really prioritizes. Prioritizing those feelings of love. And we highlight and the things that grip us is when romantic stories, they move us and move our emotions and stuff. And we start thinking that marriage is only those romantic feelings. But if you've been in a relationship, you know that those romantic feelings quickly die out. The euphoria of love comes and goes quickly. You can feel something today, but then it can be gone tomorrow. This kind of romance, that romantic love, is not the type of love that holds relationships together. Those feelings, those romantic feelings are not the type of relationship, that's not the type of love that'll keep your marriage from ending. What that is, is a trick, it's a culture is teaching us is that that's how we find fulfillment. We feel a void in ourselves, we feel missing something, and we go to a person to fulfill it. But we're not sure if that person will keep fulfilling it. What we've done is created a vendor-consumer mentality, is that I approach a person with, I have needs that you can fulfill. You can help me feel better about myself, or you can help me find who I am, or establish my career, or become who I think I need to become. But as soon as those romantic feelings start fading, we start questioning if they're going to be rejecting us, or if we should reject them, or if the relationship's just not working out anymore. And we swapped what God's chosen, what God set up for marriage, for this consumeristic, romantic type of love relationship. So in place of jumping into the unknown mystery of marriage, we've started believing we can outthink our parents, outsmart previous generations by leasing the marriage before committing to it. Take me as I am. Take me where I need to go. 
And if these are not met, we have our back door. We have an exit strategy out of relationship. Now, before we go farther, just a little more, I just want to recognize something, too, is that we're talking a lot about millennials. We're talking about a lot about young adults. We're talking about Gen Z. But, you know, the highest divorce rate is baby boomers. And to me, that just shows is that we all are trying to figure out relationships in our life. We all are trying to figure out how do we approach that commitment? How do we stick it out? How do we keep it going? How do I keep going when it doesn't feel like the relationship's moving forward still? It's not just the young people. It's all of us, I think. Because that's kind of how God built everything. It's all built on relationships. Our relationship with God is built on relationships. Even how we interact with God is built on relationships. How you interact with society is built with relationships. How you interact with your mother or father, whatever, is all built on relationships. And sin has caused an opportunity for those things to go awry. Cohabitation, living with each other, the lack of commitment, this is not what God's intentional in, had intention for marriage. So going back to our scripture, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. It says, as scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. When we're looking at the relationship between church and Jesus, we see a covenant-based relationship. We throw this word around a lot in church. I mean, just show of hands, how many people have heard the word covenant? Okay, almost every hand. How many people could give me a written definition of what covenant is right now? Show of hands. Brian, great. Okay, perfect. <laughs> There's a few more than that. Okay. But it's something we hear a ton in church. Churchies, all these words, but we don't really have a practical definition for that. So I want to delve a little bit more into what that foundation of what does marriage mean? What is that committed? What does a covenant relationship look like with your wife? You know why a lot of marriages start and fail within that first two-year period? It's because going back again is because we have changed marriages from commitment to commodification. Commodification is where we exchange. Social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. I give so I can get, or I'm in it because it fulfills me, which goes back to that hyper-individuality and an individuality-focused marriage or consumeristic-focused marriage. And it's not intentional. We didn't go into this saying, I'm selfish pig and I'm going to get married to you. Like, that culture has moved into that. And relationships and the testing and when you separate distance and you get next to somebody, all of those little things that you thought were so cute at first and just all of a sudden become so irritating. She's so sloppy and carefree and whimsical. Why don't you load the dishwasher the right way? It all comes out. And we realize that in the boundaries of close proximity that we have selfish areas in our life we need to work out. You know, this kind of hit me this week is that often when we're talking about these things, but we approach our spouse as our savior as a way to pull us up to something else. We feel that void. We feel that want. We feel something lacking, and we think this person can save us. And we find that they are also lacking and also have a void and also have failure. What happens when you put two vacuums next to each other? (laughs) It just becomes a bigger vacuum. Neither of them fill up. 
and we've swapped commitment co- covenant from commodification, exchange of relationships. Pastor Timothy Keller says this. He says, to participate in a me-focused marriage requires two well-adjusted, emotional, and spiritually independent and healthy people with minimal need for others. I don't know about you, but I'm here to tell you in all honesty that that is not Amy, and it is for sure not me. (laughs) Okay? That's for sure not me. To participate requires two well-adjusted, emotional, spiritually independent, healthy people. At any given day, my best, sometimes, often, no. You can do it for a while, but at some point, there's that breaking point where you have a bad day, a bad week, a bad se- a bad year. And maybe you're looking at your relationships and feeling like we've had, we've had a rough patch. It's getting tough. Commodification says, then get out. Save yourself. Commodification says it's time to exchange this for another model that will work better. But covenant is something different. You know what really helped me? We're going to get to covenant. We're going to get to my definition of it. But what really helped me put this into a better, what gave me a good picture of what covenant is, is this is really, I think, the last covenant-based relationship or model we have right now, which is parenthood. When you approach your child, you don't go and have a child thinking they're going to fulfill a void in you. It is completely sacrificial. As soon as they enter the world, they are literally yelling to be ne- have needs met. And then time and time and time again. You know what I want most in life? Is to sleep seven hours without waking up. <laughs> but you know what my kids want to do? Stop me from ever doing that ever. I'm sick. I'm gassy. I just know that you're tired, so I'm going to cry. But what do you do as a parent? You get up again and again and again, and you give to them. Maybe you want to just do your own project on a Saturday, but you get up and you take the kids to dance lessons, to soccer practice, to their friend's house. Maybe you were saving money to go on that personal bend. Maybe you, I don't know what you want to do. They go on that big fishing trip, but you know what? Something else came up. Kids need some help with their car, and so you give it out. Your time, your energy, your resources, everything you are, you sacrifice again and again and often unquestioning for your kids. And you know why that's covenant-based is because it's still looked down upon to, to give up on your kids. Generally, it's still thought of less of as a moral failing almost to give up on your kids. The general consensus is that you stick out and give everything you can even if it's all you have for your kids. Because it's covenant-based. You're not in it to get something for them. You're in it to give everything you have to get help them succeed and live independent lives. You know, there's a story, um, as a child, one of my favorite childhood stories was called The Giving Tree. Are you guys familiar with this story? A few of you. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> a few of you are. The giving tree is the story of there's two characters. There's a tree, an apple tree that can talk, and there's a young boy. And the story tracks this young boy from childhood all the way till he's an elderly man. And you see this time where the child stops in time and time again at significant milestone moments in his life, and he talks to the tree. At first, he's there, and he's just playing under her 
uh, leaves and eating apples. And then he comes back as a young boy and says, Tree, I, I want to build a fort. And she gives him her sticks and her limbs. And then he comes back and says, Tree, I'm a man. And I need to go across the ocean and, and I need a boat. And so she gives the top part of her trunk. And then he comes back and says, I found a wife, but we need to build a house. And so she gives all of the trunk and finally comes back as an old man. And she says, I have nothing left to give. So I'm just looking for a place to sit down. That's the idea of what a covenant-based relationship is. Complete sacrifice. When the other person doesn't show up, you still show up. Commodification is lowering relationships so uh, to an economic status, give and get. Covenant is an exchange of personhood. Covenant is giving of yourself and that person giving back to you. The second place that I have for you to look at that is just the relationship of Jesus. Going back to Ephesians verse 5, verse 32, it says, This great mystery, it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, so someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. Verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You know how many times I beat myself up because I feel like I have to prove myself to come to God? You know how many times I get frustrated because I feel like I didn't pray enough or do enough or wasn't the dad I wanted to be or reacted the way I wanted to be? I felt like I had to prove myself in relationship to God. But this verse is something that has held me in the faith for so long. As I come back to this verse time and time again, thinking about how at my worst, while we were still sinners, Christ came for us. Not when we reached spiritual perfection. Not when we accepted him. He came back to be beaten, to be bruised, to be despised, to be spit on, to be put on a tree. And Because I know that Christ came for me at my worst, I know he will never reject me because I know at that moment, that's my worst. It's all uphill from here. Covenant relationship is that. Your marriage is an opportunity to daily minister and preach the gospel to your spouse. It's, the op it's sacrificial, servanthood-based love. It's action-based love, which is why euphoric feeling-based love will never carry you through because feelings come and go. Have you ever thought about how you can love somebody without liking them? Because love, in this sense, is action-based. The feelings aren't there. But I know what love looks like, so I can show up. I can sacrifice time, my preference, what I'd like to do, my money, and I can love you. You know, Timothy Keller, actually Eugene Peterson, sorry, he was talking about how in his ministry there were times and Sundays he would show up where his heart just wasn't there. He just wasn't in the worship. He just wasn't ready for that Sunday or whatever. But he knew that your heart and your feelings follow your actions. So he would show up. He would put his hands in the air. And somewhere in the middle of the worship set, he'd realized that his heart caught up to his hands. And that he realized that he started worshiping. Even though he was kind of not faking it, 
forcing the motions at first. Maybe you don't feel love right now in your relationships. Maybe you don't feel that covenant kind of sacrifice right now. But if you keep waiting till the other person changes, you just keep spinning out and the cycle continues. But if you start breaking that cycle and break in and start a covenant relationship where it's an exchange of persons and coming at their worst and giving everything you can, you'll find that you actually start seeding happiness, seeding love in your life, and it actually starts growing. You know, the gospel message is really this. It's that, that we are so lost and so flawed, so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. But we're also so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to do it. It says with great joy he went to the cross. You notice, though, that this, what I'm talking about, everything I'm talking about is not gender-based. You know, the church has a dark history with this passage. The terms of submission and treating your head of the house and all those things, we've used those verses to abuse and to hurt each other, which is the very opposite of what we're doing. But everything we're talking about right now is equal. I can love, I can do all these things that Jesus did, and so can my wife. We can minister those things together. And all of these things set the foundation and the uh, the context before you get to the roles, which is where we usually get hung up on, which is really when we usually, where problems start is where you're not doing your part. But our parts are to love each other where we're at. We don't have time today to get into the, the, the roles and stuff. We're going to get to that some, at some other point. But I do want to bring up this other verse from Tim, or this uh, quote from Timothy Kelly. He says, fulfillment is on the far side of sustained, unselfish service, not the near side of it. Sustained, unselfish service. There's a few thoughts as we're kind of wrapping up today. You know, the last couple of weeks, um, I noticed uh, probably about two weeks ago that when I was going to bed, I, I was just kind of settling down, that my finger was kind of sore. My finger was a little sore. Didn't really think anything of it, just thought I jammed it or something like that. But then after the next few days, I noticed that it kept being sore. Like, it kept just kind of hurting. And after about a week, my finger had swelled considerably. It was so sensitive, and it was hot to the touch. It was just terrible. It was where the point where if I accidentally brushed it against something, I would yell and scream in pain and say words I usually had to re repent of and apologize to my kids later. It was just terrible. And you know what it was? It was just... A, a little infected fingernail. I don't know if you've ever had that where just a little bit of dirt, a little bit of something washing dishes and something gets inside your finger and it started to grow. And it created a problem where it was so big it consumed my whole attention. I knew that I was having a problem. I knew that I was in pain. It got to the point where it had to be lanced. And I'm not trying to gross anybody out. That's as deep as we're going to go. But here's the thing. As soon as all of that bacteria and infection was gone, the next day, all the pain was gone. The inflammation was there. The, uh, the, there was still some healing, still a little swollen, but all the pain was gone. I could touch my finger. I could move it in no pain. Our selfishness and our self-focusedness folk and hyper-individuality 
are little bits of things that get into our relationships. They're things that if not taken care of quickly and decisively will continue to grow and to grow and to grow until they are a problem and they will not go away until you flush it out. Our selfishness will continue to decay until it takes over our entire attention and affects the whole body. And maybe you're today here and saying, okay, I've heard all those things, covenant-based and not focused on myself and all these things, but you know what? My, I'm in a real hard place right now. So I want to give you a few assumptions really quick that Paul makes going into this. You know, we usually start and we usually view uh, this whole passage and we start it in 21, verse 21. And further submit to one another out of reverence. But Paul, this is, verse 21 is the end or the continuation of a thought that started in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music to the Lord in your hearts. Give thanks to ev for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Jesus Christ the Lord. Verse 21, and further submit to each other. Paul's assuming that the people he's speaking to and the marriages he's speaking into is, number one, spirit-filled, which is exactly an opposite of how often we approach our marriages as to be filled from them, viewing our spouse as a savior. Yet God and Paul is saying, no, be God-filled. That's the very first thing. It's come to me for the things that you need filling. When you are filled with me, that's how you're being able to show up for your spouse when they are not loving you well. When you're filled with me, that's where the Holy Spirit comes into place. And when you are tested in your love, you'll have grace and you can give it out. Number two is that Paul assumes that we're thankful. Verse 20. And you know what's really interesting? I was thinking about all of this, and I was thinking a lot about the very first relationship, which was Adam and Eve. And you know, when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he says, at last. Some translations say, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So excited, finally being, filling that part. But you know what happens a chapter later? He's caught in sin by God. And God's approaching and said, Adam, what have you done? And he says, that woman you gave me, gave me the fruit. And that thankful heart quickly turns and turns on his wife and becomes vicious and attacking. Spirit-filled life, a thankful life, are your secrets to keeping selfishness out of your marriage. Just one last thing today. Verse 21 says, And further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word reverence is a poor translation. The original was fear, out of fear for Christ. But fear in our co English context is also a poor translation of the idea that's trying to come across. Fear does not, other first, second Timothy says, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So it's not this scared timidity when we come to God. But there's something in the more you get to know God, the more you recognize the great deficit you have in yourself the great depth of sin and depravity, and that's what's happened for me, is I've realized more and more how much saving I needed. And the more and more time I've spent with God, the more and more I've realized how much he's forgiven, how much he came, how much he's met me, how much he said, it's okay, I'll cover the cost. Don't have your wallet? I got you. 
time and time and time again. And God's done that for me. And so the fear of the Lord is an awe of the Lord, a reverence of the Lord, and understanding how beautiful and fearful and how powerful he is. And so if you're a spirit-filled person, if you can force yourself to go through the actions and be a thankful person, you can start approaching your marriage out of reverence, out of fear, out of understanding the awe of who God is and how much he paid for you and start rendering that to your spouse. Again, this is Timothy Keller. I'll tell you why I've been quoting him so much at the very end of this. Often the fear of the Lord is linked to great joy. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with how wonderful he is before the greatness of his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearful and beautiful. Your marriage is a hands-on, daily opportunity to deliver the gospel to each other. When the other person doesn't show up, that's okay, because you can be fulfilled in God. When we approach marriage any other way, any other way, and you're at the same time expecting far too little out of the relationship and far more than what it can give. As I was preparing this message this week, um, I, have a big, I have a big bookshelf. I am a very, reading comes very, very hard for me. Amy, Amy has a goal of reading 53 books this year, and she's going to meet it. She's an incredible reader, a voracious reader. Me, it is like a spiritual discipline for me to read. It's very, I would much rather just binge TV than read a book. So I have a big bookshelf, and a lot of books that I haven't read on that bookshelf. So today, as I was preparing for this message, I, I knew that I needed to talk about Ephesians 5. But that's about it. This is two weeks ago. I looked at my bookshelf and I said, oh, I think this one, it's The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. Um, I've been meaning to read it. I don't know anything about it. Never cracked it. Felt like I was supposed to grab that book. Grab that book and literally all 300 pages of it is basically a commentary on Ephesians 5. Every single chapter is just a step-by-step -step tearing each verse apart, verse by verse. I felt such confirmation in preaching the right word today. So I want to read to you. This is a long uh, it's almost a page, but I think it's worth it. Just kind of this very last, as we close our time today, just kind of a few words from Timothy Keller. He says, There is a conservative approach to marriage that puts a great deal of stress on traditional roles. It says that the basic problem in marriage is that both husband and wife need to submit to their God-given functions, which are that husbands need to be the head of the house, wives need to submit to their husbands. There's a lot of emphasis on the differences between men and women. The problem is, the problem is that there's an overemphasis that could encourage selfishness, especially on the part of the husband. There is a more secular approach to marriage that says the real problem in marriage is that you have to get your spouse to recognize your potential, help you develop it. You must not let your spouse trample all over you. Self-realization is the goal. You've got to develop yourself in your marriage, and if your spouse won't help you do it, you've got to negotiate. If your spouse won't negotiate, you've got to get out to save yourself, and that, of course, can just pour gas on the fire of selfishness instead of putting it out. The Christian principle that needs to be worked is a spirit-generated selflessness. Listen to this. Not thinking less of yourself 
or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It means taking your mind off yourself, realizing that in Christ your needs are going to be met and are, in fact, being met so that you don't have to look at your spouse as your Savior. People with a deep grasp of the gospel can turn around and admit that their selfishness is the problem, that they're going to work on it. When they do that, they will often discover an immediate sense of liberation, of waking up from a troubled dream. They see how small-minded they were being, how small the issue is in the light of the grand scheme of things. Those who stop concentrating on how unhappy they are find that their happiness is growing. You must lose yourself to find yourself. I just want to take a second. I just want to pray over you. Brian, you can start heading up. If you're married, if you guys would just, for a second, just kind of close your eyes. I just want this to be an individual thing, and I don't want it to hold.